Well, part of me hoped you would just keep on going, brother. Um, <laughs> the return of the king, that's a bracing thought. I am happy to be here and really happy for the fellowship that uh, we can enjoy between churches. We think of you often at Hill City Baptist Church and pray for you and uh, just very glad to be on this pilgrimage with you. Uh, we are going to be in Romans 8 this morning. We're going to read verses 18 to 30, uh, after which I'll pray for us once more and commit our time to the Lord. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, how is it that we can have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? Is it because of our shrewd investments, our, uh, our special courage or intelligence or some power within ourselves? No, we only have hope for today and tomorrow and for eternity because of your faithfulness, because of your promise to complete what you have started in us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as individual Christians. We thank you for your faithfulness to us as churches, that uh, the gates of hell will never, never prevail against. We thank you that this hope, this confidence was secured for us in the cross. Lord, if you have given us 
If you have given the precious commodity of the blood of your son, how much more will you not give us all things? So, Lord, I pray you would be with us this morning. Give us good hope. Give us encouragement. Uh, Let us not be afraid of things that others might find fearful when we remember that you are the king of the ages, God over all. When we remember that all things are worked down to their very smallest parts for your glory and for our good. So be with us this morning as we look into your word. We pray in your name. Amen. It is a universal human desire to long for home, to long for a place of permanence, out of the reach of change or decay out of the reach of disruption, a place where we feel welcome and known and loved, where the light's always on and there's always food at the table. And yet our search for home seems so elusive, doesn't it? Always just out of reach. People spend their lives relocating and changing jobs and falling in and out of relationships, and attempt, in an attempt to find something, anything stable that we can just hang on to. You move and you don't like the neighborhood. You change jobs, you don't like the boss. Uh, you're not making enough money. The relationship isn't what you thought it would be. Or even just that hollowness of soul is still there when you moved and thought, this is going to be the time, this is going to be the moment where I'm going to finally find home. The cycle starts all over again. Time and time again, we find that we are unable to answer, to resolve our own desires. In the Bible, The underlying reason for this constant unsettledness is made very clear for us. And the reason is that we haven't been made for this world, but for another. Can a fish ever hope to find rest on land? No. Why? Well, because he was made for water. And so we will never find our rest here and now, because we as human beings were made to find our rest in God through Christ. That is our home. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, You've arrived at this resting place through the process of adoption. And we looked at the first part of this process, cast your mind back a few months ago. Um, We looked at the first part of this process. And remember that adoption, we defined adoption as a process whereby which a sinner is transferred, moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, into the kingdom of light. We saw that part of our adoption takes place in that moment that we believe 
Our status is changed from enemy to son, to daughter. And if you are a Christian, that is the current reality that you live in. And yet we also know from the rest of Scripture that there's a part of that adoption that hasn't been realized yet, is there? John says as much in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are, we are already God's children, but he hasn't yet shown us what we will be like when he appears, when Christ appears. And so there remains this already. Everything we've come to rely on and take for granted seems to be in question now. Now, we should never overlook the blessings of a stable society. That is a blessing. But we also can't forget that the true hope of the Christian is not in a stable society, in a stable government, in a stable economy. And the discouragement comes when we start confusing our temporary home with our permanent home. That's when we get discouraged and confused. But our Christian life here, even though it is absolutely the highest life any human can hope for, is just the pre-show. It's just the credits to the feature presentation. I was reading through The Last Battle. C.S. Lewis is The Last Battle a while ago. I often go there. And as they enter into Aslan's country, it's, it's the first chapter. I don't know whether you remember the, the wording. The first chapter, and each one is better than the previous one. All of this is just the prologue. Remember the saints in Hebrews 11. Remember that list of saints constantly maligned, persecuted, wandering, homeless? What kept them going in the midst of that? The hope that their best life now was just around the corner? The hope that they would regain some measure of political influence? That they'd someday find a nice seaside Retirement community where they could live out the rest of the days in peace. No, the verse says they were seeking a homeland. They desired a heavenly country. And that hope helped them endure their present struggle. And Paul is writing here in Romans 8 to saints like that. Who were and are, as we include ourselves, Struggling and suffering, not just with outward persecutions, not just with outward dangers, but remember, chapter 8 comes after chapter 7, and Paul there is wrestling with the inner persecution, the inner turmoil of the old man versus the new man, the desires of the spirit versus the desires of the flesh. They're also just struggling with the reality of life in a broken world as we are. Death and decay and futility. And what Paul is doing in this section is he's pulling back the curtain a little bit. So the light of what's to come can shine in and warm them and encourage them in the midst of their struggles. And that's what I hope for us this morning. We'll be encouraged as well as we remember that these things weren't just written for the Romans but for 
us as well, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Romans 15, four, what an encouraging verse. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope there for us as well. Before we get on to the, the mechanics of this passage, we, I just want to have a little foreword, a preamble about hope. <laughs> and we need to do this because this entire section, if you read it, is shot through with hope. And if we have bad, inaccurate ways of thinking about hope, we're going to be very confused and not really encouraged by this passage. We need to make sure we're clear on our terms and our definitions. Some of us, when we read verses like verse 21, in this hope we were saved, uh, 20 and 21, we read our own definitions of hope into that. Which, if we're honest, when you hear the word hope, what do you think about? Unrealistic optimism? Maybe naivety? Uh, But that isn't hope. That is not the biblical definition of hope. And if you're a parent, you actually discourage your kids against that kind of hope. That unrealistic, reaching kind of hope. Uh, you know, well, Johnny, we, we might go to the zoo on Sunday, but don't get your hopes up. Why? Well, it might rain. You might get sick. There might be a jaguar loose in the zoo. You know, we don't know. A million other things might thwart our plans, our hopes. Because for all our bravado, and there is so much bravado going on right now, when things are better, when, you know, when the government sorts things, things out and everything's back to normal. We are at the mercy of our circumstances. Yes, we plan. Yes, we strategize. But at the end of the day, we have to admit that we often don't have the power to bring about what we want to happen. We just don't. And so suddenly, hope becomes this sad, little, shriveled, worthless thing. We find ourselves reading verse 21 and thinking, come on, Brother Paul, let's be realistic and rational about things. We don't need cotton candy dreams about how things might be someday. We need something with substance. But the way the Bible talks about hope is not in that way. Hope is, according to one definition, looking forward to something with reason for confidence, respecting fulfillment. Reason for confidence, expecting fulfillment. That's how the Bible defines hope. When we realize that the one giving these great and precious promises is not a man or a municipality or a government, but a master architect, an omnipotent one, an eternal one, the God of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Hope in that case isn't unreasonable. It's not irrational. It's the most reasonable thing in the world for you to hope in the promises of someone like that, someone like our God. So we need to have that definition, and I hope we'll see that fleshed out as we get into the passage. 
I think there are three ways that our hope and our future and our final adoption should really encourage us in these certain times. We're going to look at three ways here. So first of all, a hope in a future adoption helps clarify the crushing weight of our present suffering. Paul gives two reasons here how a hope in future glory clarifies and actually redeems our present suffering. First of all, Paul reminds us in verse 17, go back a little bit. Uh, If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order for the purpose that we may also be glorified with him. Now, if you have a pulse, this verse might seem at first glance not a very encouraging verse. Guess what? If you're a child of God, you're going to suffer. But it's actually very encouraging because it reminds us that there's a point to it all. It reminds us that our suffering is working towards something. It's not random. It's not haphazard. Paul says here that our present suffering will in some way contribute to our future glory. Suffering and specifically a hopeful expectant posture in the midst of various kinds of suffering act as the rain that will someday produce a harvest. That's how suffering is pictured in this passage. The harvest being final glorification with Jesus. That is the goodness of life in the kingdom of God. That is the wonder of adoption. That even the worst thing in the world, think of the worst thing in the world for humans, what is it? Suffering is able to be redeemed. And more than that, even becomes necessary if we're going to be glorified. Like the plants that need a season of cold before they can be strong and healthy. That is every Christian. We will not reign with Christ until we have been seasoned through suffering. We sang that song this morning. I love it. The calm will be the better for the storm we have endured. What's that talking about? Well, if you have two ships that's, who've crossed a lake, one having had an eventless, calm, easy trip, the other one nearly being capsized in a massive storm, who's going to be happier to see land? Who's going to be more grateful? The storm-tossed one. And our enjoyment of our final rest seems to be at least a part of what God is accomplishing through our suffering. Now, I should also mention that if you are not a Christian, suffering is is not accomplishing any of that for you. Why is that? Well, because we're still in our sin and an enemy of God. Heaven Final adoption and redemption is only for those who have abandoned all hope in themselves and put their trust fully in Christ. You don't get one without the other, and that's a lot of confusion today with that. Apart from Christ, our current suffering is only a small part of what we deserve. 
There's always consequences for sin. There has to be consequences because God is a just God. We're going to endure them or Christ is. And the only resolution for those who refuse the cross of Christ will be that temporal suffering will someday be replaced with eternal suffering in hell, away from the presence of God. And that will be all of us, that would be all of us, apart from God's grace. And what a dangerous position to be in. And if you are in that position this morning, let me encourage you that now, not today or next week, is the day of salvation. So the first way Paul clarifies suffering is that he reminds them of what it's producing for them in verse 17, namely glory. But the second way Paul clarifies suffering is in verse 18. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what Paul isn't trying to do here is pretend that suffering isn't that hard, that it isn't that bad. When you're just barely holding your head above water in a season of suffering, the worst thing that can happen is for someone to come along and just kind of blow off whatever it is you're going through or minimize it or change the subject because it's uncomfortable. Now, Paul is deeply acquainted, is deeply familiar with suffering, shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned, betrayed, stoned. He knows suffering. What he is doing here is giving suffering an expiry date. He's putting it into a greater context than just the here and now so we can see it from a right perspective. Look, if, if, if the present pain and trial and uncertainty and anxiety and heartbreak is the only voice you hear, that's gonna be a devastating voice. It's going to take on, suffering is gonna take on a huge weight. Just like if the only voice you ever hear in your life is from authority, uh, is an oppressive, critical voice, it's hard not to be crushed by that, if that's the only voice you hear. But what if the comparatively few years of chronic pain, of poverty, of loneliness, of fearfulness, of persecution, is set against the backdrop of eternity, of someday being with Jesus? Well, that changes things, doesn't it? In that case, O oh death, where is your sting? O oh grave, where is your victory? Suddenly the suffering that seems so large, so insurmountable, is just declawed, just made powerless, all because of the hope of salvation that has been won for us. Secondly, our, our hope in a future adoption changes groans of despair into groans of anticipation. Who's groaning in this section, in these verses? Well, there are two parties groaning. There's creation in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together. 
But also, verse 23, Christians are groaning as well. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Why is there all this groaning? Well, creation, we're told in verse 20, is groaning because it has been subjected to futility, specifically to this bondage to decay. How is decay demonstrative of futility? Well, I've talked about futility here before. Futility is the process of doing something over and over and again, no matter how hard you try, not being effective, and just, you just keep doing it over and over again. Uh, it's poor Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill only to have it slide down the other side. In creation, we see this futility, this bondage to decay everywhere. Um, we like to watch the, uh, the Green Planet shows, uh, sometimes on Netflix. Uh, the futility of decay is all over the place. Uh, it's the sea turtles laying dozens of eggs only to have most of them eaten by seagulls before they even get to the water. It's watching beautiful, intricate, delicate summer, summer flowers dead under a week. It's mankind laboring and working and scheming and saving to arrive at the good life only to have it all taken away at 75 or 80. The trend toward decay toward unraveling describes so much of our existence. People wonder why, no matter how perfect their job is, there's always something that goes wrong. A customer you can't make happy. A boss with unreasonable expectations. Budget cuts that make it so you can't do your job well. What's the reason for that? Bondage to futility. That's why the line in the chart is always trending downwards. We used to dread watching Disney movies with my mother because it didn't seem to matter how seemingly innocent the movie was. She would always have something to say about the underlying worldview every time. I've actually inherited that, and now my kids don't want to watch movies with me. But you know what? She was right most of the time. Case in point, the Lion King. What's the central theme of the Lion King? Circle of life. Life, death, rebirth. It's portrayed as this mysterious, beautiful, wonderful process. But it's not a beautiful process. Anyone who's witnessed rot knows that. All that energy that went into creating life just ebbing away. It's an abnormal futile process. It's the creation subjected to decay, and they groan because of it. But why do Christians groan? We know it's Christians that the we ourselves are referring to in verse 23, um, because in Romans chapter 1, 7, if you flip back, it states that the letter is to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This letter is referring to Christians, to saints. So why are, why are we groaning? Why are Christians groaning? Well, we've already looked at the fact that we too are under a curse of decay, decaying bodies, decaying projects and endeavors. But there's another reason we groan, 
And that is because of our battle with sin. And we long to be free of that battle. And again, it's no accident this chapter comes after seven where Paul mourns the duality in his heart that he loves God, but that he also loves sin and goes back to it. Those sins, those habits you keep thinking are dead and then they come back. Those idols you tear down like Gideon and the next day they're, they're standing again. Doubting whether God is, is gonna take us back after we've fallen into the same sin even though he always does. Wallowing in deserts of spiritual dryness and desertion. Futility is there even in our Christian life. Yes, Christians suffer along with the rest of creation and humanity in futility. Yes, we're longing for a new and beautiful creation, but for those whose first love is Christ, our most potent experience of futility is our inner battle with sin. It doesn't get worse for the Christian than that. How do we get to this place, this place of being cursed? Well, for mankind, we're experiencing the consequences of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the consequences of our own sin. We're reaping what we've sown. But for creation, it says there in verse 20, that it was subjected to decay not by its own choice or even by accident, but because of the will of him who subjected it. It was God's deliberate decision from the moment Adam and Eve sinned that the creation, even though it did nothing wrong, would not be free to go its own way, would not be loosed from its dominion under man. In God's inscrutable wisdom, he decided that the fate of creation would be bound up with the fate of mankind and ultimately to the fate of the new man, the new humanity, which we're going to get to in a bit. Let's look at how. How is creation and we ourselves groaning? And and this is important. We can't miss this. Because you can have two kinds of groaning. You can have groans of despair. You failed the test. The diagnosis is terminal. The foundation is cracked. Those are the groaning of hopelessness. There's another kind of groaning, isn't there? It's expectant groaning anticipatory groaning. Groaning like the analogy given in verse 22, the groaning of childbirth. And these are the groans of creation. Is childbirth painful? Yes, so I've been told by my wife. Does the mother in the labor process long for it to be over? Also yes, so I've been told. And there is understandable groaning in the midst of that process. But it is a groaning of hope. It is a groaning mixed with the eagerness of seeing a new little life. In fact, the phrase used here of the groaning of creation literally means eager expectation. Creation is figuratively craning its neck, straining on the leash to get to what's coming. 
Maybe you remember the feeling of looking out the window for a relative or a friend to come when you were young. You're waiting, and that's not fun. But the waiting is tempered with the expectation, and so it's not unbearable. And the hope, when it's realized, is so much more amazing. Now, not everyone is looking for the end credits. In fact, there's a lot of people who don't want to think about the end, who don't want to think about death and the end of decay and try to drown it out with TV and games and work and a million other things, other distractions, but not creation and not God's saints. We're looking out the window, eagerly expecting and waiting for our final redemption. Finally, what are we groaning for? What's the expectation? How will it be realized? It says in verse 23, about creation and Christians are waiting for a very specific event, namely the redemption, freedom, and glory of the children of God. And God's plan, the moment of emergence, of conclusion, of liberty for creation will be the day of the resurrection of the saints. The redemption of our physical bodies. That will be the moment when the already gives way to the not yet. As Christians, we know that we have already been adopted into God's family. Our inheritance is certain. Our eternal life isn't in question for those who are in Christ. So what's missing? Our final clothing in the language of 2 Corinthians. The full realization of our adoption. The loop of hope isn't complete until what's being hoped for is received. And the redemption of our bodies is a subject that I don't think gets enough airtime in our churches. Um, too often that event is still shrouded in, in the myth of our disembodied existence and floating around in the heavens somewhere. Um, other people have captured this. Here's a quote from Wendell Berry, and, uh, and don't get your theology from Wendell Berry, but he, he kind of enunciates a lot of people's perspective. Because of my unruliness or some erring virtue in me never rightly schooled, my life has not taught me your desire for flight. He's talking to Christians who think like that. Dismattered, pure, and free. I long instead for the heaven of creatures, of seasons, of day and night. Heaven enough for me would be this world as I know it, but redeemed of our abuse of it and one another. What he's longing for there, a heaven of creatures and seasons and day and night, is absolutely how the Bible portrays heaven. What's the difference? No curse. No slavery to decay and death. And yes, we're told that's going to be a jarring transition. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 talks about the elements melting with fervent heat. Why is that? Well, how do you take the impurities out of gold? You have to heat it. You melt it down because the impurities are so mixed up with the gold. 
and this world is so shot through with corruption, that's what it's going to take. But it will be remade. And the Bible talks about the new earth in very concrete language. I love that passage in Isaiah that uh, Jason read. A feast laid out for all nations, being in the presence of God. Heaven isn't about the removal of everything we've known and loved and was familiar, but the, resur- the restoration, the resurrection of it. This is not a haphazard story with a doubtful ending. All these events, carefully planned from eternity, carefully predicted through the scope of Scripture, carefully set into motion through the cross, which was the fuse that lit the whole story in the first place. Without the cross, there is no Romans 8 and no revelation, except the part about the chains and the darkness and the judgment. But with the cross, we have Romans 8, and we can know that God will see this story through to the end. And that's a good reason to have hope in these days. Thirdly, and and finally, our our hope in a future adoption enables us, verse 25, to wait patiently. Wait patiently. Um, Maybe you are in conflict with someone at work or with a family or a friend. Maybe you've just received some terrible news. Maybe you're just reeling from the constant barrage of bad news. Maybe you're walking with a brother or sister who's suffering from so many angles and you feel powerless to help them. You don't have the resources to help them. You don't know what to do. What do you do in these situations? Well, maybe you're like David in Psalm 55. You just want to be a bird and fly away to the middle of a forest somewhere where no one can find you and bother you where you won't have to deal with hard things anymore and suffering. Maybe you turn to quick fixes and hits of sin and distractions and different ways to numb the pain, make it more tolerable. Or maybe you're just always hanging on the edge of despair. But despair is not a virtue. It is not humble. One person described despair as responding to the difficulty of the good by pulling back or falling off. Despair is the act of forgetting or ignoring hope. It is an act of faithlessness. It is a fundamental disbelief in God's promise to make all things new someday. To despair is not to be a realist. It is not to be mature. Because in despair, we're not viewing circumstances according to reality, are we? According to our chapter here, the correct response to such promises, even in the midst of a world brimming with death and futility and uncertainty, isn't despair or indulgence, but patience. There's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress between two children passion and patience. And he says, then I saw that one came to passion and brought him a bag of treasure and poured it down at his feet. Passion immediately rejoiced at his good fortune and laughed patience to scorn. 
but after a while I saw that he had spent it all away and had nothing left but rags. And Christian asked the interpreter to explain this matter more fully to him. So the interpreter said, these two lads are figures which illustrate the passion of those of the world and the patience of those of the world to come. As here you see, passion will have all now. He cannot wait until next year, that is, until the next world for his portion of good. But as you saw, he quickly spent everything away and soon had nothing but rags. So will it be with all such men at the end of the world. Passion will have all now. He cannot wait until the next world for his portion of God. Too many Christians, and I include myself in this sometimes, live in passion and not patience. I want the suffering over now. I want the comfort now. I want the victory now. And we are in a culture that just lets us constantly indulge that impulse. And so most of us have forgotten the importance, preeminence of patience. How do we get back to it? Back to hope, back to patience. We do it through confident expectation, through leaning on the absoluteness of God's promises to us and to creation. Not like those people waiting in a Black Friday queue, hoping to get that on sale item before it's gone. Not that kind of hope. No, eternal life, glory, the redemption of our bodies is a sure thing. It is a purchased reality. And it will outweigh whatever madness we've had to endure in this life however hard that is to believe sometimes. Here's Isaiah 65, 17. Well, we read it this morning. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. That will be our final adoption. The sheer wonder of being with the Lamb following him wherever he goes, seeing his glory, living in the midst of a renovated creation forever. That trauma, that crisis, that sin, not even coming to mind. One of the greatest ways for a Christian to witness and be a testimony in these days is to walk in hope not in blind optimism, not in cynicism, but in confident expectation. Christ will return someday, maybe soon, maybe later. When he does, he will set all things right. All injustices will be corrected. His kingship, his lordship will endure to eternity there will no longer be any dark, dark corners for sin to hide in this world. So if we are in him, if we are sustained by him, we can endure all things. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clear hope that we have set before us in this passage of Scripture. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans. You have given us your spirit as, as, a, as a down payment, as a seal. And Lord, we know that there is an inheritance waiting for all those who call upon you, Lord Jesus. An inheritance preserved, incorruptible, outside of the reach of decay. Lord, you have purchased this. You have won this inheritance through your blood. You will not let any sheep fall through the cracks. You will preserve all. And so we look to you this morning. We thank you. We pray that we would be people of hope, people of light in this dark and hopeless and despairing world. And we thank you that that is not an unrealistic posture for us, but the most reasonable thing we can do. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen.